Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Without comparing one historical era to another, suffice it to say that we live in a nation filled with anger, despair, and at best, anxiety. Our ideological, economic, and cultural divisions have infected every fiber of the public square. And all of this is happening amidst a loss of faith in our once valued institutions, both public and private, a loss of faith in facts and truth, and in the fundamental founding principles of self-governance, fairness, and selflessness. But we didn't get here overnight, nor did some external force, not even Donald Trump, create this environment. Like the proverbial frog in the pot as the water boils, it crept up on us over time. And if it's true that the beginning of wisdom is knowing where to find it, we best look at ourselves and the places that might have been the breeding grounds for all of this. My guest, National Book Award winner Evan Osnos, went like Simon and Garfunkel looking for America. He looked in the mix of places he knew best. Places like Greenwich, Connecticut, where he grew up, Clarksburg, West Virginia, where he worked as a young reporter, and Chicago, the very definition of urban America. The result of that effort is his new book, Wildland. Evan Osnos is a staff writer at The New Yorker, a CNN contributor, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He writes about politics and foreign affairs. He was the China correspondent at The New Yorker from 2008 to 2013. And his book, Age of Ambition, was a National Book Award winner and finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And he recently wrote a book about Joe Biden. It is my pleasure to welcome Evan Osnos back to this program to talk about Wildland, the making of America's fury. Evan, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jeff. Great to be back with you. Well, it's great to have you here. I want to talk a little bit about the moving target that is this story of, of America. Over the course of, of writing this book, and it took several years, as you've talked about, the way in which the places that you write about, Greenwich and Clarksburg and Chicago, the way they've changed over time, and the fact that, that as you told this story, it was also a bit of a moving target along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, had, I didn't know, of course, at the beginning of this project when I sort of embarked on this in 2015, I had no sense that there was going to be a Donald Trump presidency, honestly. I mean, I didn't think he would win. I also didn't think there would be a global pandemic. I didn't think there would be this video of the killing of a black man that would reveal in in, in ways I think that were more vivid than we had ever really grasped before as a culture, uh, the depth of racial injustice, and I, I, or at least the, the sort of breadth and, and persistence of its form. And I, so I, in some ways I started on this just because I sensed that there was some illness in our political culture, but I didn't have a feel yet for the ways that that illness would manifest. And, um, and so as a writing project, it was it was a bit of an experience of just going, following where the course of the river swept me along because I couldn't have anticipated it at the outset. And talk about the beginning of it as you, as you move forward along that proverbial river, the sense of where this started, whether it was, was 9-11 or whether it was the 2008 financial crisis, what were the inflection points that really kicked this into overdrive? Well, I think you actually have to go further back. And if we keep up the river metaphor for a minute, because it's been helpful for me in my own mind, you know, when I started on this whole project, it was about trying to say, all right, I, I, I think we all know that the 
current political moment is this raging whitewater. But the question is, where are the headwaters of this thing? Where did it begin? I mean, if you trace it further and further up into the hills, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm sort of an armchair fan of explorer stories. And I always remember the search for the source of the Nile and the kind of metaphor in there. And I, in my sense, I was sort of looking for the source of the Nile in political terms. And I think you have to go back even beyond. You're absolutely right to raise the financial crisis, to raise 9-11. Those feature into the book as these catalytic moments, these kind of galvanizing events in American politics and self-identity. But actually, it goes all the way back. And to give you one example, one of the things that I look at in the context of my hometown, Greenwich, Connecticut, is the way in which some of the people who are at the pinnacle of American economics, some of the greatest beneficiaries and also architects of how we relate to one another in financial terms, how they've changed their own perception of themselves. And the example that I often think of is that um, in 1980, for instance, so now, or 81, let's go exactly 40 years ago, the dominant figure, the most influential businessman in America, his name is kind of lost to most people today, but his name was Reg Jones, and he was the head of the business roundtable. He was the chairman and CEO of General Electric. He was just a, a colossus. He lived in Greenwich, and he was also very self-conscious about any expression of wealth. He didn't like it. He didn't like to show it off. He lived in a house that really didn't look all that different from the houses around it. Um, and his successor at General Electric, of course, was Jack Welch. And Jack Welch was an icon of a, of a much more demonstrative era in American wealth. He ended up receiving a severance package of more than $400 million, a record-breaking severance package. And just in those two men, you get a little bit of a depiction of the change over 40 years. Right. You talk about how the, in, in Greenwich in particular, how values changed as more and more money came in, that it changed some of the fundamental values there in substantial and, and significant ways. It really did. I mean, I don't want to overstate things and pretend that in the, you know, quote unquote, good old days, <laughs> Greenwich was, was shy and retiring about its wealth. That's not the case at all. I mean, it was, you know, going back to the Gilded Age, um, you know, the Victorian era. It's always been a place that gives you a window into the thinking at the at, at the in what I think of as the engine room of American capitalism. Um, but it's fascinating to take note of how that's changed because it really has changed. So in some sense, this is a return to the Gilded Age rather than it is something brand new. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, and this is kind of amazing uh, to think of it, that the executives at Morgan Stanley, the big the big investment bank used to have a running competition about who could wear the cheapest watch, wristwatch. And, you know, there was something almost ostentatious about that aversion to, to showiness. That was sort of by design. You had to, they wanted people to, to, to know among themselves that there was this aversion to visible expressions of wealth. But then you fast forward to today, and the you know actually the the CEO of Morgan Stanley is kind of celebrated for having one of the most um, glamorous, expensive watches on the on the blogs that focus on wristwatches. He's a kind of celebrity figure, and I just think that in ways that you accumulate over time in a long-term writing project like Wildland, 
where it's this accretion of tiny detail, one thing after another that just kind of lodges in my in my craw. And I just essentially over time tried to create a portrait of the place I know, the place I love, but also a place I can write about with some candor and some concern um, because I can sense the change over time. When you make the comparison to the Gilded Age, is there something reassuring in that? In the sense that the story of America is this story of this constant rebalancing, that, that there's greed, there's philanthropy, there's industry, there, there's immigration, that, that this story repeats itself over and over again in different ways, but in ways that, in Mark Twain's phrase, in ways that do rhyme. And is there something reassuring in that as we look at the present landscape? It is. Yeah, I think you're right to, to frame it in those terms, because I do look at it and say, this is not some um, some inexplicable collapse of the American ethic. No, actually, this is quite recognizable. We can identify the sources of how we got here. And that means we can also identify some of the ways to get out of this moment. And And this has happened before. I mean, there is a brilliant bit of writing over the last couple of years from Robert Putnam at Harvard, who who has charted the way that the United States went from the Gilded Age to the progressive era. And one of the things that he has identified, he wrote a book with a, a, a co-writer named Shailen Romney Garrett, in which they charted how there is this way in which Americans become aware of our own excesses at various points, excesses of, you know, of, of, um, extravagant consumption or of abuses of 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 our advantages or of the ways in which the opportunity that is so essential to the American self-narrative, when those moments of opportunity get choked off and, and people at the bottom of the income scale no longer feel like they can rise to the top, that when those things happen, we do pick up on it in the culture. And frankly, the fact of my book at all is a sign of that because I'm just writing about what other people are talking about constantly. We just use different language for it. So, yeah, the answer is we do have a way of pushing the pendulum back. It doesn't happen on its own. We have to push it. And that's part of that's part of the process um, is to is to define it. And it seems true in in all three of these places that you write about. Greenwich in terms of, of the financial side, the excess side that we've been talking about, but even Clarksburg in, in kind of its post-industrial place also has similarities is as the industrial era began. And and certainly Chicago and the urban experience is the story of, of race in America. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this was, I, I was sort of fortunate in that my own life has been, um, defined by these three places in, in among others where I've lived, but they are so different. They're completely different experiences. I mean, to live in Greenwich today or when I was growing up there was to win a kind of cosmic lottery. I mean, just extraordinarily um, uh, splendid. And I received this fantastic public school education because the local tax base can support it. And then if you go to a place like Clarksburg, West Virginia, where I went as a young journalist, my first job out of college, and really sort of fell in love with this part of the country because it's just immensely interesting and rich. And the history is, for anybody who's interested in this kind of thing, it's just layer upon layer 
uh, almost like the land itself. There's a geological record to the political economy that's fascinating. And if you go there, you begin to understand why Trump happened. I mean, there's, it, it stops being a mystery. I mean, right. people, we all sort of sometimes talk about these turns in our lives. We say, oh, my God, how could this pandemic have found the country so unprepared? How were our institutions so unprepared? Well, actually, not so strange. If you go back and look at the way that we've impoverished some of the most important federal institutions by choking them of necessary resources. When you look at the people of Clarksburg, talk about the changes that have taken place there, because this was once a, a working class democratic bastion. And and even over the time of, of the writing of this book, you watched how that changed. Yeah. Fascinatingly, when I went there for the first time in 1999, it was all Democrats. I mean, Democrats controlled the congressional delegation, had control of the legislature. And just in the course of this relatively brief period of time, 20 years or so, it's become almost entirely Republicans, with the exception of of Joe Manchin, who is uh, precisely because of that, he's in this position of power uh, because he's the pivotal swing vote. But part of the reason why that happened was because um, the decline of the unions over the course of the last 40 years has meant that Democrats paid less and less attention. They had less reason to pay attention to West Virginia. And there's this amazing fact that in 1960, John F. Kennedy came to Little Clarksburg, West Virginia. It's a small place, 16,000 people in the northern part of the state. He was running for president. Not only did Jack Kennedy come, so Bobby did Jackie Kane, Kennedy. Right? And his, yes, exactly. Bobby came, Teddy came. I mean, they all came. And then I asked the folks at the Historical Society who have come to know over the years, I said, you know, tell me, can we figure out who are the other presidential candidates that have been to Clarksburg since then? And they said, well, we've looked and looked. And all we can find is there was only one. It was Jesse Jackson came once. And that was about it. And so in a way, Clarksburg kind of fell off the Democratic Party's radar screen, and as it did, the narrative took hold in town that, that quote unquote, those people don't care about us, you know, the folks in power, the folks in, on the coasts, and that becomes self-reinforcing. And I think part of what you're seeing now is this effort by some parts of the Democratic Party to say, how do we reach back out to working people in rural America? What is the path back in? Because we can't really afford to just close the door and walk away. One of the other things you talk about, and it's true in Greenwich, it's true in, in Washington, D.C., is this sense of seclusion that exists and, and how that played into the current environment. Yeah, I think of seclusion as this super theme that's running just beneath the surface of so much of what I'm writing about, because one of the things I discovered in the course of doing of doing the research for Wildland was that we live in this period, of course, in which we have all these tools of network. I mean, the idea of being networked is a cliche of our time or just, you know, we think we're all connected. But in fact, all it's done is reinforce the degree to which we can we can sort of live entirely within our own our own world. To give you an example, there's in Greenwich, as the, the richest person in town is a guy named Ray Dalio, who is a, uh, of course, a big hedge fund uh, founder. Um, and I spoke to him a number of times for the book, and he was very interesting. One of the things he said to me, you know, he's a guy who is very much um, ringing the alarm bell and saying he calls income inequality in this country a national emergency. And as he said to me, look, most of my friends in Greenwich have no reason to come face to face with the conditions in really vulnerable, struggling parts of 
the country, even places that are just 25, 30 minutes up the highway in Bridgeport and Norwalk, Connecticut. And he said the reason is because if you don't have a reason to go, you would never have to go. And the reason he has, curiously enough, is because his wife is very involved in public education in Connecticut. So they've been in and out of the schools a lot over the last couple of years, the last couple of decades. That's sort of opened his eyes to it. But he's quite aware of the fact that one can, certainly his peers can, live a life that is more or less, you know, call it Michael Sandel, the Harvard political philosopher, describes it as the skyboxification of American <laughs> life, which is quite a nice term. And I think you can apply that broadly. I want to come back to your earlier life, even before this book, and how you saw this from China, how you saw the early parts of this beginning to evolve as you watched it from so far away. Yeah, I, I sensed some of this. I mean, the, the interesting thing is I went abroad in, in 2002 and went to the Middle East, first working in Iraq and then uh, elsewhere around the Middle East and finally in China all those years. So I watched the rise of, for instance, Barack Obama as a political force with some distance. I was, you know, as readers will discover in Wildland, I had this kind of kind of unusual um moment of overlap with Obama early in my career. So I was quite aware of him. I'd met him. I'd spent some time with him. But then to see him sort of rise to the top of American politics, I was looking at it through this distant telescope. And it wasn't until I came back to the U.S. that I was able to fully absorb all of the currents that were swirling around Obama. The fact that we didn't know this at the time, really, but the fact that the number of white supremacist organizations was skyrocketing during the Obama presidency. This was something that was on the radar screens of, of analysts, of activists, um, but it didn't yet puncture into the surface until we got up into the early years of the Trump phenomenon. But another thing, I mean, there was an amazing moment I had in Beijing at one point, Jeff, when my neighbor, I was telling our neighbors around the neighborhood, we were heading home and we lived in a Chinese neighborhood and the person who lived immediately next door is a, a widow named Jin Bao Zhu, and she'd never been out of China, but she watched the evening news every night. So she had formed an impression of the United States. And we said, uh, we're, we're heading home. And she said, ah, the United States. Yes, yes. Well, she said, be careful, because it's a very wealthy country, but everybody has a gun. And I remember thinking what an interesting Kind of obviously, it's easy. We could poke fun at that portrait because it seems so simplified. But she was not wrong. I mean, the, on the technical basis, she's absolutely right on both questions. But that was, for me, eye-opening to realize that's how we're starting to look in the eyes of the world. And how did that happen? How did we get there? Talk about your early meeting with Obama when you interviewed him for the first time. And, and, and there was a sense even then, and it would grow as, as time went on, of him having a sense of where this was all going, of what these polarizations would look like. Yeah, this was one of those quirky facts of history that you couldn't design. I was a, I was a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune, and I worked there for ended up working there for uh, for close to a decade. But this was the first year I was there, and there was this young law professor and state senator named Barack Obama who was running against the this very dominant congressman from the south side of Chicago, Bobby Rush. And Obama was a real underdog, so much of an underdog that they assigned me. Uh, couldn't I couldn't report my way out of a paper bag. And, and they assigned me to go cover him because they said it's such a, um, an unlikely success. 
And so I went out and I interviewed Obama and I followed him on the campaign trail. And I really, and this is not unique to me, I would have had to be completely blind and deaf not to notice this. He had this really extraordinary political magnetism and people were already starting to respond to it. He had this ability to weave his own biography with his own, his own awareness of the full reach of American political literature to kind of he could spin this extraordinary poem about who we wanted to be as a people. And at the same time, he could also tack back and be very technocratic and talk in all kinds of extremely, almost excruciating detail about, about policy. And the truth was at the time, he still, he was a little more policy oriented than he was poetry oriented. And I remember one event, he was going on at some length about something and the guy sitting next to me fell into a deep sleep and, but the thing is, Jeff, you could tell already this guy was um, was extraordinary. Now, that didn't stop me from making one of the more um, embarrassing decisions of my political journalism life, which is that after interviewing Obama in 1999, I promptly taped over my interview um, with <laughs> to use the tape again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just said, yeah, I said, I really I want to save the 299 here on the tape. So. Uh. So that thing is lost to the ages. Um, but I, but a few years later, when he did come in, yeah, that was it was five years before he became the the speaker at the Democratic National Convention, and and uh, we saw some of those instincts early on. Given what he understood, why was he never able to do anything about it? I mean, in many ways, as you've talked about and as you write about, uh, the Obama presidency exacerbated so much of this. He, he sort of understood these fault lines, but were, was never able to do anything about it. He was, I think there was a, a degree to which, just simply in his own personhood, the fact of who he was, the combination of black and white and intellectual and also raised by Midwestern grandparents, he had this ability to transcend and then also to generate resistance, um, whatever he did. And, and the fact is, there is a degree to which his, his breakthrough in American history was also his greatest obstacle. Being the first African-American mm-hmm. president in just generated a level of almost unannounced political opposition. You, you cannot understand, I think, the brick wall he ran into in Washington from people like Mitch McConnell, who said so famously that their mission was to make Obama a one-term president. You simply can't understand that without the overlaying forces of race and of um, fear of a more diverse country. And I think Obama knows that. But he also was never going to come out. He very rarely would come out and say it. He's sort of done it more in, in, in recent years. Um, but I, one of the facts I mentioned in Wildland is that the data showed years later that the moment when he came out early on and said, you'll remember this case involving Henry Louis Gates in Cambridge. Right, sure. Obama criticized the police in Cambridge for having arrested Gates in front of his own house, that um, – Obama said that the police had acted stupidly. And that moment, it shows very clearly. It's like a a cliff uh, in the data when he began to lose support, particularly from white men, and it never recovered. As we look at these three areas that that 
report on Wall Street, essentially Main Street and Clarksburg and, and, and urban America in Chicago. Is there a, a place on a Venn diagram today where they all meet, where there is a commonality? Yeah, that's an interesting way to frame it. I, I think there is something very deep that runs through this set of what can appear to be completely different experiences. And that's this idea that actually appears deep in the American mind, which is the sense that we all have this belief in the idea of America. And that is a really um, thin way of describing something that's quite that one's quite deep. There was F. Scott Fitzgerald had a had a not a, not surprisingly had a much more eloquent way of putting it, which was that you know he once said that uh, England was a people, France is a land, but America, as he put it, is a willingness of the heart. And by that, you know, that can sound that can sound sort of blandly poetic, except what he's really getting at is this idea that it's very hard to imagine yourself if you're an American. It's very hard to imagine being anything else. We have that, you know, we call that American exceptionalism. We call it a lot of things, but it is this encompassing belief in the possibility of what the country can achieve. And that still rages. I mean, that idea is still strong across these very different places. And it doesn't mean we don't have our, our, our problems with how the country works. In fact, one of the requirements of being American is to criticize the country and to say we can do better. And um, that, in the end, is some, one of the things that unites us, is this completely persistent belief that we can do, we can and must do better. Did you come away from this, particularly where we are today, post-Trump, did you come away from this more or less optimistic about what the future holds? I come away from this actually more optimistic. And I think that, you know, which is funny to say, because this is a book that is quite blunt right. about the scale of the challenge of, you know, I have some statistics that'll just, I mean, in my case, just stopped me cold. Sometimes I'd come, ac come across these numbers and just think, my God, the, the, you know, the, the scale of our income inequality or our, just the sheer difference in our life expectancy from one part of the country to another makes it feel as if it can be hard to imagine reuniting our political commons. But actually, one of the things that I really came away with is the power of, of definition and self-correction. We have this thing that was built into the origins of the country. And, you know, I think sometimes we get a little too, um, we get a little too weepy about just celebrating the founders for their genius. But actually, this is a case in which they were onto something. The idea that every four years, we get a chance to do it over again and to start to give our political system a reboot is a powerful fact and a fragile fact. And I think if there's anything we've learned over the last, particularly the last year with the events of January 6th is that we can't take it for granted. And, you know, right now a book like this is designed to, um, it's designed to, to, to make a person stand up and say, Holy smokes, we are we are in a in a, a dangerous moment as a country, and it's up to us if we're going to fix it. Evan Osnos, the book is Wildland: The Making of America's Fury. Evan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure, Jeff. Always fun to chat with you. Thank you.